Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're listening to our Sex and Spirituality series, which will contain references to various aspects of human sexuality and may not be suitable for all listeners. When students ask me where Western culture got its negative attitude towards sex, I often think about priestly celibacy. This isn't my own theory, but some scholars who think about the history of Christendom link the notion that sex is sinful or dangerous for the soul to the fact that almost all Christian religious leaders in Europe from about the 5th century until the Reformation were celibate, or, or they at least paid lip service to practicing celibacy. If sex is good, why wouldn't priests allow themselves to marry and procreate? There must be something uniquely holy about depriving oneself of sex, which then implies that there must be something sinful or degrading about sex. My point is, the question of how and why we got the idea that priests should be celibate is not a minor one. It echoes across the culture and informs the way we think about sex across the Western world straight up to the present day. I'm Super Rob C. Thompson. I am joined by my stunt coordinator, James Kaplanges. Oh, howdy. And contest winner, Riley Claxton. Hey there. <laughs> Trying something new. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know what contest Riley won, but it's a contest in which we take your religion and uh, we go to town on it for a day. <laughs> and bring it to the Listen, podcast. That's... <laughs> I'm used to it by now. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You were good with Jesus, but I don't know. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. I am not Super Rob. Uh, and James is not my stunt coordinator today. Tomorrow, though, he's. we're going to get started on that. Uh, James is the captain of the table. Riley, our resident Catholic. And Riley, it's been a while, man. It has. It's uh, been a long time. I'm going to tell folks your good news. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, so Riley, <laughs> James t- reminded me last time that it's been two, two years, years, give yeah. or take, <laughs> since we since we've been in the theater. So now it's been less than two years because, you know, James was here uh, six weeks ago. But uh, Riley has, has gotten married and had a child. I have. And how old is, is your son now? He's 10 months. And what's his name? John Paul. John oh. Paul. I knew that, but <laughs> folks folks should hear that our resident Catholic has I mean, named her child John Paul. Yeah, it's no surprise. <laughs> uh, so is that, that keeping you busy? It is keeping me busy, very busy. These yeah. 10 months have flown by. Yep, yep. Lots of podcasts to listen to when raising a child. Lots of podcasts. <laughs> we recommend it for you breastfeeding mothers out there. <laughs> Nothing like listening to priestly celibacy <laughs> while, you, while you breastfeed. James, it hasn't been so long. Have you been doing anything fun lately? Uh, Halloween season, man. Yeah, well, it's it's starting to get um, spooky and uh, cool out. I've been um, been running. Since it's not hot, really? it's not too hot for me to spend time outside without, you know, having to like um, peel the clothes off my body. After You're jogging, I sweat men. so much. Nice, but now it's cool, and I can do it for a brief moment in time. <laughs> Thirty seconds at a time. <laughs> yeah, go to the end of the driveway. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much. I'm working up to, you know, the end of the street. But <laughs> were you ready? To, you ready to do this? You remember this, Riley? I think so. We, the members of the the secret secret order of of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Like riding a bike, man. I know. Like riding a bike. Watch your leg on the mic stand. Are you good? Just don't touch the mic stand. Yes. Yes, sir. (laughs) That's where it all falls apart. (laughs) 
All right, let's uh, open up those plugs, Captain. Plug, plug, plug. All right, we got some people to thank. We got some reviews to mention. Mike L, new to the patrons. Joshua P, Kelly G, Freya G, Vincent V, Vivi, Jason, Gross Ferratu, who uh, I think messaged us something like greetings humans. Oh, that guy's awesome. Gross Ferratu. Bodan, uh, Johnny F, and Abby G. We also heard from Bodan uh, on the interwebs, on the reviews, finding us diabolically amazing. So Bodan's doubling up there, patron and a review. <laughs> Unless they're two separate Bodans. <laughs> Could happen. Yeah, it's kind of the odds. I want to thank Jason Rule as well, who's reviewing us on Podchaser. Likes the history and the humor. Thank you, Jason. Podchaser, check it out. If you're looking for a new podcast app or, or just a way to uh, learn about new podcasts, it's a great way to connect with indie shows. Boy, you know, HBO, every damn major freaking entertainment outlet has got podcasts these days. And I will tell you one thing. They're all awful. You need to be listening to indie podcasts. We are where it's at. And Podchaser's a great place to discover us. Uh, I want you to check out a couple of things before we get out of the plugs. Uh, a student of mine uh, is in a band, and it's good music. Otherwise, I would not be mentioning it here on the show. The band is named Fluorescence. F-L-O-R-E-S-C-E-N-C-E. Fluorescence. Check out their music on Spotify. Also, Luxastrata, our friend over at the Luxacult podcast, has come up with a, a kind of an album, like a an occult album. I don't even know how to describe this. It's wild. It's weird. It's sexy. It's called Gratus Animus. G-R-A-T-U-S. Gratus Animus. Give it. Give it a listen. If you're having a. If you're having a night, you're in a weird mood. This is for you. That sounds really cool. Close up those plugs. Plug. 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 All right, Riley, you're off the hook for a little bit because we're going to bug the Jews and the Essenes. Okay. I'll gear up. And then we'll mess around with the Bible, which we all know, you know. Know what? What do we know? <laughs> we know. What do we know? You shouldn't throw it. That's it can be interpreted in many ways, yes. and you definitely shouldn't. You shouldn't throw it at anybody's head. That's how you get detention. <laughs> you get detention for <laughs> yeah, throwing the Bible? I, I, I said it. I didn't. There was space between the book and the table when I went over. <laughs> That was your early days of captaining. You hadn't quite mastered the captaining of nah, the table. You were a mate I, of the I table. I had to learn in the hard way. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you had to write on the chalkboard, I will not throw the Bible. I will not throw the Bible. Judaism is the parent religion for Christianity. Papa, mama, both. Which began as a sectarian movement within a Jewish community. Christianity, that is, not Judaism. It would be weird if Judaism began as a sectarian movement within Judaism. Although in a way, yeah. John the Baptist, that's kind of what that was. Uh, and yeah. Judaism, right? Yeah. yeah. Judaism had its own version of sexual constraint on priests, albeit far less severe than celibacy. Ancient Jewish priests, the Levites, were allowed to marry, but within certain boundaries. They had to marry a virgin of their own people and were expected to produce offspring who would carry on their priestly line since the priesthood was limited to the descendants of Levi. Otherwise, you would have no more priests. They were instructed in Leviticus to abstain from their wives during their period of service in the temple. That's uh, 833 for those of you following along. (laughs) (laughs) It strikes me that I'm not a Bible guy. Leviticus, is that name for the tribe of Levi? 
Ooh. Right? Levi's the first four letters. James loves this word stuff. Yeah, I do love the word stuff. The now, Riley, you don't have to real. go on the record here, but do you think that's possible? I think it's possible. All right. Again, I'm not speaking for the Catholic Church, <laughs> but <laughs> there is a danger of that. And I, it's often happened to me that I've given my opinion on something, and then somebody will be like, well, she's Catholic, and she said it, and so therefore... Uh, you mean like when we're talking on the show or later? In general. You're just walking yeah. in the mall, and people stop you and be like, Riley... I people mistakenly call Riley the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. It happens... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or they think that like because I'm Catholic, I'm the be all end all of Catholic knowledge, you know, oh, or, they, or, oh, any ca- or any Catholic. You're is. a token well, Catholic. Yes, or or people will just say that about other Catholics. Well, I have a friend who's Catholic, and they said this, and I'm like, that doesn't mean that you're kind of like our token Catholic. Yeah, but, but Jacob I mean, is our token serpent handler. We found out in the patrons. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. They his church they handled snakes. I mean, this oh, is Oh, I want to hear about note. that. Yeah, well, we'll talk about okay. it afterwards. Uh, and if you want to hear more about it, you've got to be a patron. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's coming up. This, uh, this, or maybe we've already posted. Anyhow, y'all, we're all tokens of one kind. You're our oh, token Greek Orthodox over there. Yeah, I'm a token Greek hairy man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only one. <laughs> we've had other Catholics come and go, haven't we? No. No, it's just you. They're not yeah. drawn to us. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand. They're, okay, they're not drawn to the Eastern Shore. No, that's that's true. The, you remember your location. That's There's true. not many yeah. of us there here. There aren't any Catholic schools over here. Saints Peter and Paul, but it's very um, okay. There was it's one very Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> There's it's very it's more in name. They handle there serpents. Is, there is one uh, when I was in biology class. What was it? Two years ago, uh, this guy that was in my class. I heard him. I'd never met another Catholic at Chesapeake ever. I'd been here for like two years, and I heard this guy. And it's actually next year I'm entering the seminary. For the Diocese of Wilmington, and I like interrupted his conversation. I said, "What? You're a Catholic?" And he's like, "Yes." And I, I couldn't believe it. And he did. He's he's now he's in the seminary. He's gonna but, be a priest. But he he's was celibate. the o- first and only Catholic I'd ever met, and here. a serious one at that. A serious one at that. Yeah. Not just a regular Catholic. Yeah. Super Catholic. And so I was like, I, "I'm super Catholic," and he's like, oh. and <laughs> "He didn't like, ask you to be a stunt coordinator." <laughs> he's like, "Prove it." <laughs> Moses instructed the Israelites to abstain from sex while he was receiving God's revelations on Mount Sinai. As I recall, that didn't go very well. And when David led his troops against the Philistines, their abstention allowed the army to partake of consecrated bread. I don't know what any of that means, but cool, David. Another sect of Judaism. What was that? Like they couldn't eat. Maybe they were starving. It was desecrated. It was consecrated. Consecrated. <laughs> Very different. Sorry. <laughs> Opposite. That's why I thought it was so funny. Another sect of Judaism that developed that developed shortly before Christianity uh, came on the scene was the Essenes, best known for their Dead Sea Scrolls. Josephus and Philo claimed that the Essenes lived communally and practiced absolute celibacy on the belief that this would deliver them into the Promised Land. But... Archaeological evidence suggests that marriage was deferred rather than abandoned by the Essenes with members marrying beyond the age of puberty. Because we all get married at puberty. So, Christian celibacy is difficult to tie to either Judaism or the Essenes directly. Possibly Christians were inspired by ascetic traditions like the Stoics or Indian yogis, but they'd never admit it. They, they, they would Mm-mm. use, they would like not eat food. 
and well, like the, not it, have shelter and stuff like that, right? Well, yeah, those guys sex. got real serious. Yeah, but sex was in the mix. Sex was in the mix, but like anything was up for grabs. So philosophically, though, the Christians were a far distance from this because okay. sex was uber, fe- you know, focused on. Particularly if we're looking at you know four hundreds, five hundreds, sex was the thing you couldn't do. You could eat. You could have a roof. You could always eat. Yeah. Wear pants. Yeah, we don't have the Christian ascetic in the little outfit. The naked. There's no outfit. You're right. naked anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the most sorry the most common explanations for celibacy revolve around the religion's founder jesus of nazareth maybe you've heard of him riley have you heard of this guy yeah yeah vaguely vaguely well i'm, I'm gonna fill you in <laughs> questions surrounding jesus on the subject of marriage have cut both ways the argument in favor of celibacy is that the Gospels make no mention of Jesus himself ever being married, and so the priests model themselves on Jesus when they choose a celibate life. But, gets a little controversial here, there is no clear evidence one way or the other as to whether Jesus remained celibate. I, I tend to believe historically that if he was married, they'd probably have mentioned his wife at some point, his mom's right. in there, and all his friends. Um, but was he not married and having sex? Catholics say no, <laughs> but we don't know. The document from a from a perspective of history, how would we be able to know? Jesus spoke sparsely on the subject, describing both the indissoluble nature of marriage and praising those who made themselves like eunuchs. This was Matthew, if you're following along in your Bible. But what Jesus meant by eunuch, if anyone at home, if anyone's following along in their Bible with this episode, you really got to let me know. You got to write in and tell me, Rob, I followed along. It's not 1910 in Matthew. Uh, but what Jesus meant by eunuch is highly debatable and ranges from a kind of soldier to unmarriageable or infertile people to those who had abandoned their married lives to follow him. So he says, make yourself like a eunuch. But it could mean make yourself like a soldier or make yourself like somebody who can't produce children or make yourself like one of these guys. Who knows? Um, And by discipleship in Christ context, living outside the bounds of family responsibilities, it was meant to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you lived outside of the bounds of the family, you entered the kingdom of heaven. The Buddha actually said some very similar things because the Buddha left his family and then they came back. But neither chastity nor an unmarried life were expressly required for anyone in particular. We might read some passages as encouraging celibacy, but they don't expressly prescribe chastity for any individual or group. So far, so good, my Orthodox and my... That sounds about right. All right. Let's move on to Mark. Among the disciples, Mark described how Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Hmm. So, it looks like Peter... Pope number one. Yes, Riley? Yep. Numero uno popo. Primero uno. Peter was married. It's significant, but Francis ain't married, though. Mm-mm. What's up? Does he think he's better than Peter? <laughs> 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 it's significant that Mark doesn't go out of his way to say Peter is married. Okay, so let me harp on this for a second. This is a really interesting argument. Um, Mark just sort of like in passing mentions that Peter has a mother-in-law. He doesn't take a special moment. This is really the only way we know Peter is married, is because Mark just so happens to say Peter's mother-in-law. And then Jesus went and healed this lady, and she was Peter's mother-in-law. Mark, by the way, for Bible scholars, tends to be the most respected of the sources, because Mark is the oldest. 
Mark is also not the one that you quote the most often because Mark tends doesn't isn't as pretty as Matthew or Luke where they get into you know Christmas and all that. So people don't mess around with Mark very much. But Mark is I teach Mark to my students. When I teach Christianity, I use Mark because he's the most accurate, as far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> okay, but again, he's just like, oh, by the way, Jesus healed this lady, and she was the mother-in-law. So he kind of dropped the ball, but there that was a secret. It was like, why are you trying to? <laughs> okay, I could be wrong. It says, and I don't for- I forget the verbiage if. It just says family or if it says wife and children, but I feel like it's often talked about as his wife and children. It says that Peter drops his nets. That's the image given. And I like it's literal, but also an image and and meaning he drops everything and and leaves him. And I forget the verbiage used and it might differ in a book, but I, I don't know. It's talked about at least as he leaves his wife and his children and his family and he follows Jesus. And I don't know if that's the verbiage used or not. That was Um, what I was taught. Right. And so maybe it's because we've taken it as we now know that he was married because of his mother-in-law. And so that's, I don't know if that was the words used or not. I forget, but it might've been. Could could, could be traditional or could be. Yes. I I mean, there's an idea that the disciples left family. Yes. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make about Peter here, Mm -hmm. the offhanded nature of this Mm -hmm. reference means that Although Peter's the only one we're sure is married, it's conceivable that every one of them was married, yeah. and Mark just never brought it up. I mean, they were all normal dudes. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, so, tradition holds that John, who Jesus loved best, was a virgin. I'm going to say tradition again, not documentation. But again, no clear evidence. Paul, let's move on to Paul. Let's get on, Let's get past the actual disciples and move on to the... One in his mind. Hey, Paul. <laughs> hey, Paul. Mind Disciple. That's kind of a cool title, I guess. Mind Disciple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah G- Mind Jesus. He was but... the first mind freak. But I don't know if that's... <laughs> no, that's bad. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> Go ahead, Riley. First of the many, I guess, Mind Disciples. Yeah, then, yeah right? it would have to be everybody after yeah. Paul and everyone after. Uh, never met the historical Jesus, uh, but wrote a whole lot of the New Testament, unlike most of the people. <laughs> that was unique that Paul got to write most of the New Testament. Uh, but Paul may or may not have been married. It's possible that his wife had died before his conversion. We don't know. For his part, Martin Luther, none other than Martin Luther, believed it was likely that Paul had been married since this was customary for Jews at the time. Writing to the community of Christians in Corinth, Paul said that it was best for a man not to touch a woman, but then proceeded to describe both marriage and celibacy as Mm -hmm. gifts from God. Marriage could distract from prayer, but married men and women should only withhold themselves from each other temporarily in order to pray. This sounds a little bit like Judaism, the Levites taking a break to do the temple stuff. In his letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul said that deacons, elders, and bishops of the church should be experienced in the running of the household, which suggests that they should have their own households, presumably with a wife. This might be interpreted to mean that church authorities should only be married once, which is now the orthodox tradition, right, James? Yes, that that you can only marry once and if you're, yeah, and only before you're ordained. Yes, but if you're married, you're good. Yeah. You can go ahead and keep her. Yeah, you got to keep her alive, though. <laughs> it's 
normal. I think we all have that responsibility, yeah. James. Whether we are Orthodox priests or not, we should keep our wives alive <laughs> if at all possible. I don't know. You're not Greek. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know my ways. <laughs> I don't know what's important to you. Well, a lot of the verses you're talking about, especially the ones in Corinthians, are verses that are, I hear spouted back and forth all the time between Protestants and Catholics on this issue. Just, again, different interpretations, especially because he does, he kind of defends both sides. He talks, I don't know, he, he talks a lot about it. And yeah. so people basically just use Paul's words back at each other. And they, they're like, what about this? Well, then what about this? It's and a so, wash. Yeah. Paul cancels himself out. Does. He, 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 I don't he, know. I feel like it's more like, it's kind of like a mess. Like, whatever you guys want to do. We don't wash our hands in the Bible <laughs> unless we're Pontius. <laughs> no hand washing. You want we wash feet. If we're cool. He washes his feet a bit. You don't wash hands. <laughs> what, James? Oh, it's like, like whatever side of the fence you're on, either, either you're married or you're celibate. Either way, it's a God's gift. It's what you got. I, I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like Paul's okay with that yeah. interpretation. So far, so good. And yet, celibate priests. The, the mystery continues. So that didn't help. <laughs> as with most things, the Bible is not especially clear, as Riley's saying, on the subject. Uh, celibacy, sex, marriage, who knows? Jesus, uh, let, me, let me go through this just to like, really drive home how unclear this is. Jesus, his disciples, and Paul all offer less than clear answers to the question. In the Pentateuch, let's go to the, let's go to the Old Testament. Yahweh favors temporary abstinence at specific times for priests, but the reason is not necessarily opposition to sex. In fact, the Old Testament God often favored sex and procreation. It was Yahweh, after all, who coined the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. And he gifted Abraham not only with Isaac by his wife Sarah, but six more children by a second wife. Good Catholic family. (laughs) Good Jewish family. In one of the Bible's most scandalous tales, uh O'Reilly, God rescued Lot, you know this one, and his two daughters from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot dwelt in a cave on a mountain where his daughters got him drunk on wine, and he fathered children by them. And the Bible doesn't then say, and that was weird, or <laughs> that shouldn't have happened, or God didn't feel good about that. It was, It just happened, and it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, the Old Testament, Rob. Old Don't Testament make battles. me leer the Old Testament. Let's go back to the Gospels. Oh, we like those better. <laughs> <laughs> Anything but the Pentateuch. Jesus also defended adulterers and prostitutes in the spirit of the idea that nobody's perfect and everyone deserves God's love. Neither Yahweh nor Jesus said anything specific about sustained priestly celibacy. Fourth century church fathers, namely Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine, would have to read into and beyond the text to develop what would become the doctrine of celibacy among the clergy. And so begins this dark journey. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) In the second century, Tertullian, oh, Tertullian, Tertullian is someone I teach in theater history as someone who did not like theater because he was a humorless and difficult man. You wouldn't want this guy like over to your like Easter party. That's fine. His name sounds like pasta. <laughs> His name pasta? Is... Well, that's okay, isn't it? <laughs> okay, it's fine. It just makes you hungry. <laughs> I'm just trying to rag on him. Tertullian promoted continence and celibacy. Of course he did. But Ignatius, uh, by contrast, same second century argued that a virgin should not presume that he is superior to a married bishop. 
Virginity, said Ignatius, isn't necessarily bad, but being a jerk about it is. Thank you, Ignatius. <laughs> Love yeah. Ignatius. Come speaking, on. Speaking the truth. Don't be a jerk about it. <sighs> Ambrose. Now, now it gets dark. So those guys, second century. Tertullian's a jerk. Ignatius kind of cool. I know somebody that just named their baby Ambrose. Sorry. Uh-oh. Just a diff- just a- I'm going to change their mind about that. The baby's still young. They can switch it out. Oh, no. Well, no, they knew They they knew why. They, it was on purpose. They named it after this Ambrose? Yes. Oh, no. But that's that makes no sense at all. Listen, I have a baby with a Catholic name, but it's I know, not but Amber. Ambrose. No, yeah, Amber. Right. John Paul is not known for how he invented celibacy. So, no, he okay. talked about orgasms. <laughs> Go, John Paul. Save that thought, Riley. Save that (laughs) thought. We might want that at the end. That'll be for the patrons. Uh, Ambrose. Let's get to the irony of naming your baby Ambrose. Writing in the fourth (laughs) century. Said it was appropriate for an ordained man to be married, but a bishop should practice celibacy. So he's a little down the middle here. It's actually like the orthodox mindset. You, You guys are still like this. He was born around 339 in the French part of the Roman Empire and moved with his family to Rome in 354, shortly after his father's death, when he attempted to mediate a conflict over the succession of the bishopric of Milan, the crowd called for him to receive the post, and he was named bishop. This whole world makes no sense to me. I can't understand 4th century people, right? It's like if you went to a presidential debate, and then you were like, let's just make the moderator president. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are an autonomous collective. <laughs> what if what if Connie Chung is just the president now? I don't know. He adopted an ascetic that's a pretty old reference, Connie Chung. Is she still on the air? I have no clue who, what you're talking who about. I have debates. no idea who you're talking about either. Connie Chung? She's married to Maury Povich? I don't know. I didn't oh. know that. Maury Povich knows who fathered your child. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Wait, they're, they're married? Sorry, he's married to somebody who moderated presidential debates? Oh, she's a news lady, yeah. She's a serious oh, journalist. That's an interesting... T- TV journalist. And he, he did that. And he, yeah, he knows the dad. Hey, he's been on television for like 20 years. Doing so. them tests. Is, he, is that still on? Is that still like making current episodes? I don't, I don't know why people would get tired of it. <laughs> I didn't. That reminds me of being sick when it I was aired, a kid. Yeah, like at home because it would play office. and like, yeah. Straight anyway. to the doctor's office it airs. he adopted an ascetic lifestyle ambrose gave away his money and land argued against intermarriage with pagans and jews here's where ambrose gets to be a bit of a jerk when a synagogue had been destroyed and the emperor theodosius sought to replace it ambrose wrote him a letter saying don't replace it he warning him that his people would think he was a jew (laughs) if you replace that synagogue people are going to think you're a jew emperor Wait, how did he build a synagogue if he's, <laughs> if he's <laughs> a Jew? <laughs> and he encouraged Theodosius, as well as his predecessors Valentian II and Gratian, to persecute pagans. Although he was harsh with non-Christians, within Christian belief, Ambrose could be flexible, arguing that liturgy should follow local custom. Rites and practices were tools to help people worship God and shouldn't be rightly, rigidly prescribed. And... Using Mary's virginity as a template, he argued that celibacy was superior to marriage. Also, making babies, Riley's friend. The virgin birth is worthy of God. 
Which human birth would have been more worthy of God than the one in which the Immaculate Son of God maintained the purity of his Immaculate origin while becoming human? We confess that Christ the Lord was born from a virgin, and therefore we reject the natural order of things, because she conceived not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. So Ambrose is not going off Jesus here, he's going off Mary, but we have to bear in mind, this is kind of, I'm not going to call it feminist, because that makes no sense, but Mary's often not part of the equation, because we're talking about dudes with priests. Priests yep. have been dudes. Historically, yeah. yeah. Also in the 4th century was the great debate between Jerome and Jovinian. Okay, so FYI, confessors, uh, these guys get worse as we go. I get angrier. So <laughs> Ambrose, I was, I'm like mildly miffed because I'm also, I like that he was, you know, a little bit open about the way you practiced your Christianity, although I'm not so pleased with the Judaism and the paganism and how he treated those guys, but yeah, I'm mildly miffed. Jerome, I'm now I'm getting a little white knuckly with Jerome. Jerome was born in Dalmatia. Also, you know, not my favorite kind of dog. Present day... I'm not, so, so you already got that wrong. Right, right. Huskies are clearly superior. Had he been born in Husky? It, uh, well, Siberia. Uh, <laughs> then we wouldn't have had these problems. He would have frozen to death at the age of 12. Um, he was born in, born in Dalmatia, which is Croatia today, in 342. So you you can thank the Croatians for the Dalmatian, I, I imagine. Thanks. Because, you know, otherwise how would fires get extinguished? <laughs> he traveled... <laughs> Never know what I'm going to say. Never know. He traveled to Rome at the age of 12 and indulged in relations with the fairer sex. This caused him terrific guilt, and he spent Sundays in Rome's crypts imagining himself in hell. <laughs> Riley finds this ridiculous. You're 12, man. Have a good time. Why did he do that? <laughs> he didn't have to. His companion in Rome, Bonosus, persuaded him to convert to Christianity in 366. So he was born 342. Let's do the math here, James. 366. How old is he? He is 20. Four. Okay, so he's in his he's between twelve and twenty four when he's doing all this sexing around Rome and crying in the catacombs. That's a big difference though. Uh, it's a lot of time to go sexing around. His life's work, in addition to his various theological tracts, was a translation of the Bible from Hebrew into Old Latin. All right, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that takes a smart dude. Yeah. Jerome believed, now it gets uncool, that virgins on earth would be a step ahead of the rest of us in heaven. Elaborating on Paul's comments about marriage, Jerome reasoned that marriage was better than hell, but still not the best course of action. Better than hell. Better than hell. Riley's newly married. She knows what we're talking about. (laughs) When you are discussing continence and virginity, you say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And it is good for them if they abide even as I. And I think that this is good by reason of the present distress and that it is good for a man so to be. When you come to marriage, you do not say it is good to marry because you cannot then add than to burn. But you say it is better to marry than to burn. If marriage in itself be good, do not simply compare it with fire, but simply say that it is good to marry. I suspect the goodness of that thing, which is being forced into the position of being only the lesser of two evils. 
What I want is not a smaller evil, but a thing absolutely good. So what Jerome is saying here is that, you know, sex is wrong, but having marriage, being married while having sex is less wrong, but that doesn't make it great. Right. Still pretty crappy. Yes, yeah. sinner. It's like dirty you, instead of getting sinner. a large fry, you get a small fry. <laughs> you're still getting a fry. You're still yeah. getting a fry. Yeah, your stomach is still not having a Which good is not time. as much. Yeah, that makes me angry too. On the opposite side. Oh, well, no, hold course. that thought. Hold on. We're going to dig into there because we're going to get to Jovinian. Then you can tell me whether you agree with Jovinian then. If you don't like Jerome, Jovinian was his historical rival. Okay. Jovinian believed it was ridiculous to separate Christians into camps of more or less spiritual believers. Christians entered the community of the faithful at baptism, and there was no division within that community. Furthermore, God could not be an advocate for abstinence because, James, why can't God tell us all to be abstinent? Because he has a son. Because we, we need to populate the earth? Is that is that what I yes, needed to say? Yes, yes. Okay. I feel like we're on Hollywood Squares. You have your joke answer and your real answer. Well, that's like a... That reminds me of... What's his name? Um, What's his name from... Uh, FLDS. Um, what's his name? You know who I'm talking about? The FLDS? Crazy, okay, the crazy Mormon, the crazy polygamous Mormons. Uh-huh. And what's his name? Their prophet who's now in prison. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Um, but anyway, he's because he since he's been in prison, which he will be for like ever. He's he's it's forbidden for anybody to have sex now, and it has been for years. Oh, because you, he can't. You can't have even sex. touch your spouse. Yeah, because he can't. And basically, he says if you don't have sex, they'll get me out of prison. Like that's to God. I don't know whatever it is. But I'm like, you're just dying out your own little cult. They're yeah. all gonna die out anyway. So God would would. Like, because God wants this man to have sex, he is going to free this man from prison. It's it's their like sacrifice to get him out, I guess. I don't know, but really, it's like to he's, get God moving the wheels. Yeah, that that right. he's being held in prison is punishment for their sins, I guess. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, but he, you know, raped like a lot of girls, and he's going to be underage. in prison forever. Yeah, yeah. forever and ever. But they don't, they're in a cult; they don't know that anyway. But that's what it reminds me of. They're going to die out soon. They're it's in a been cult, like though. ten. It's been it. like ten years, I think. We're in a cult. You don't even it's realize like that you're dying out. That's what happens to <laughs> the Shakers. Anyway, no idea. They were busy dancing. <laughs> they were dying out. They didn't notice because they were in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a hot take that the Shakers were a cult. I don't know that I believe that. Okay, Jovinian says, "If the Lord had commanded virginity, he would have seen to condemn marriage and to do away with the seed plot of mankind, of which virginity itself is a growth. If he had cut off the root." How was he to expect fruit? If the foundations were not first laid, how was he to build the edifice and put on the roof to cover all? I love this. <laughs> we can't have virgins if we don't have babies. <laughs> there will be no more virgins. If God loves virgins, we at least need to have more babies so he can have more virgins. Babies are virgins. True story. <laughs> true, true. Okay. Uh, we can't follow up on that, James. We can't make any further comments. It just gets weird Sorry. if we talk any further. Period. Jo- <laughs> Back to Jovinian. Jovinian cited the examples of Abraham and Sarah and the married disciples and the marriage at the feast in Cana as evidence that Christians should marry. Jerome, by contrast, cited Elijah and claimed that all of the apostles and disciples he guessed were unmarried. Didn't read the Bible very closely, Jerome. 
Although he translated it. <laughs> he just missed the mother in He mistranslated the whole mother-in-law thing. Oh, no. The best thing married people could accomplish, said Jerome, was to produce virgins. <laughs> <laughs> what you got to do to do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Ah, the logic. Marriage was a distraction from the priest's life of prayer, and any priest who fathered children after his ordination was guilty of adultery. You're married to the church, man. And now we save the worst for last. <laughs> Augustine of Hippo. Regarded, as Riley will tell you, as among the greatest philosophers oh, yeah. of the early church. He's a doctor. Hashtag He's a doctor. city of God. City of God. <laughs> Hashtag confessions. Picked right up. Picked right up on Jerome's line of thought. Along with Ambrose and Jerome, Augustine is the third pillar of Christian celibacy. This is not me making this up. This is the scholarly mm -hmm. understanding and I think the Catholic understanding oh, yeah. of where celibacy comes from. Augustine's troubled relationship with sex began at a bathhouse in his home city of Thagast or Thagasti in North Africa, which is present day Algeria. Hmm. Uh, he wrote a lot about himself. So the beauty of Augustine is that, uh, you know, he just told us if we think he's a jerk, it's because we heard it from him. It's not like somebody else is talking about him. <laughs> the 16 year old boy, 16 year old Augustine was stirred to arousal, presumably at the sight of the bodies around him at the bathhouse. And his father, Pat Patricius was like, yeah, my boy. <laughs> Dad's. He went home and bragged to his mother, Monica, about the prospect of grandchildren. Any day now, he's got an erection. <laughs> grandchildren will Something's be next. bound to happen. Yes. Well, I mean, bear in mind, James, the time period. Really, we're, we're really weeks away from conceiving. But Monica was a devout Christian and worried for her son's soul. Patricius did not share this worry, and so Monica set out to replace Augustine's earthly father with his heavenly father. There's a bit of interpretation going on here, but it's an interpretation of Augustine's text. Mm -hmm. Augustine was sent to a school in Maduros, and Patricius died the following year. Very convenient, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> in She's a saint, too. Of course she is. <laughs> She's seen as a she's patron, the patron saint of, of women who killed their husband of of like bereaved mothers or oh. of, of worried mothers for right. their children's uh, salvation. Not bereaved wives. <laughs> I I hear Augustine is in Maduros. Okay, so in Carthage, Augustine had a series of affairs. The nature of those affairs is obscured in his memoir, namely the Confessions, by a euphemism. Because, uh, you know, Christians do love a good euphemism, do they not? And may have involved both male and female partners. Hmm. Eventually, I don't know where they get that they were possibly male partners, but I'm delighted at the idea. <laughs> Eventually, he settled into a monogamous relationship with a woman which lasted 14 years. And he had a son by her, but they never married. And he never named her never named her in his confessions. A woman, the mother of his child, who he knew for 14 years. Okay. 
Augustine adopted the Manichaean belief system native to Persia, which held that there were forces of good and evil in the universe constantly at war with each other, and the good was spiritual and the evil material. We can hear the roots of Satan in some of this. Satan is often, the Manichaeans are frequently blamed for Satan, in part, although the Zoroastrians played a role in inventing Satan. Anyhow. But, <laughs> some people out there are like, Rob, talk more about Satan. <laughs> nope, Satan, not this Satan, episode. What, what? This is not that episode. My ears are on fire. Settle down, settle down. <laughs> okay. After he moved to Milan, he heard the Bishop of Milan, namely Ambrose, preach. This is where Ambrose really comes in for it with me. And it began to sway him toward Christian belief. Monica arrived and separated him from his mistress, sending her back to Africa. Yes, literally the mother-in-law <laughs> moved into the house. And not only did it not go well, she kicked her out, sent her home to a different country. Jeez. What did Augustine say about it? Nothing. <laughs> okay, mommy. Mama's boy. The original toxic mother-in-law. Yeah. <sighs> this caused it caused Augustine great pain, he says. Uh, but he he took another mistress, so that made him feel better. Nothing like a second mistress. Oh, so that's what you'd gotta do. No. <laughs> Have your mom come in. <laughs> when mommy comes and gets rid of mistress number one, you just find another one. Get on the old uh tinder. Y- ye old tinder. Ye old <laughs> just carve a picture of yourself in the village square <laughs> augustine was there chiseling away for a good time call literally you'd have to call his name uh it, t- <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't take long after his partner's departure for him to be converted to roman catholic christianity and belief in the power of sexual continence so second mistress didn't last in ostia he experienced a particular dual mystical experience with his mother while discussing the happiness of the saints, both stretching upward with fiery emotion. Days later, Monica became ill and she died shortly afterward. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but if we had a psychologist, a psychoanalyst here, oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. What what would they say, you think? <laughs> Joint hallucinations with the mother who kicked your wife oh, yeah, out of yeah. the house? <laughs> that sounds like some Carrie shit. It's, yeah. you know, this feels like our episode on Howard who committed suicide after his mother died. But he invented Conan the Barbarian as opposed to this stuff. Celibacy. Conan got laid. Augustine was responsible for rehabilitating the story of Adam and Eve as a central tale for Christians. At the time, the story was criticized for its suggestion that God should withhold knowledge from humanity, and some church fathers encouraged believers to interpret the tale as an allegory. This is fascinating, I think, that Augustine is behind the revival of this Genesis tale. Augustine saw an important message in the story, specifically about sex. He was troubled by the lack of voluntary control people had over their sexual organs, which were governed by an involuntary lust. In paradise, he said, before the fall, Adam and Eve had voluntary control over their sex organs. Just sit with that a second. Adam was walking through the garden saying, you know, arise, penis. Eve was saying, Shall we lubricate? Right. And so it was. I, I, hmm, I like just, a mind, just, like, <laughs> like in the way I would lift my arm. 
I would, and I kind of imagine right. him shouting it out into the trees. Uh, yeah. Penis. Vo- voice command. Yeah. Voice command. Yeah, like Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> Penis resurrect. <laughs> resurrect. Okay, fair enough. Fine. Post-coitus. I get what you're saying, James. <laughs> this, this episode does have a warning at the beginning. We can say those things. Okay, sweet. Resurrect. Uh... Adam could will his erection, Eve her lubrication, in a state of peace, rather than unbidden arousal. Nobody likes unbidden arousal. You're just like in, you know, the eighth grade and talking about Martha Washington. Yeah, but that, doesn't that really arousal. stop like a couple years after eighth grade? Yes. I mean, you generally gain control as time passes. Right. It, but, but that doesn't mean we have voluntary control over our sex. Yeah, I understand. Because we respond yeah. to stimuli, right? Mm-hmm. They would not have had the activity of turbulent lust in their flesh, however but only the movement of peaceful will by which we command the other members of the body. It sounds... I mean, don't hate me for saying this, but it <laughs> it sounds like he just didn't... He couldn't control his penis, and he got real <laughs> upset about it. I don't hate And needed a reason it. for okay. it. I agree with you. I okay. think that's part of it. Because um, it seems like he, he could have like got some exercises, done some Kegels, and been all right. Kegels? With yeah. what? Huh? With his anus? Yeah. <laughs> Wait. I'm just saying physically there are things you can do about this blood flow, not like oh. voluntary. Yeah, what were you saying, Riley? She's just thinking I- about your <laughs> anal kegels. <laughs> yeah, I just never thought of that. We I never heard a, a male say that. Do we ever heard of male kegels? No. <laughs> I can't really say I have. Well, I, I guess you're not on the right message boards. I guess I'm not. I am, I am on the right message boards because they don't bring up male kegels. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Augustine had a troubled relationship with mm-hmm. his penis, James. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I think he... Yeah, I think it was guilt and shame in him like wanting to blame it on something other than himself. This is the reason, Mom, why I had sex with all of those women and baby men and, and he, yeah. this th- this is why it yeah, makes Monica. me feel uncomfortable me. to to just to think of that like my lust is involuntary because it's not you mean i don't know there's a faucet i could turn on and off i think we i think the point james is that we can choose what we do about the feelings that we yes. have but we That's can't any choose feeling. the feelings if you're attracted to somebody, you don't get to you don't get to, you don't you don't walk into a room. And you're like that one. I will decide is attractive because she has a good job and uh, she seems like she has yeah. r- childbearing hips. Well, that's any. I'm sure some people do that. <laughs> no, but yeah, no. <laughs> but that's with any feeling biology. or emotion, right, right? right? Like if I get really angry, it's fine to to feel angry, but that doesn't mean that I should punch you. Like that angry. doesn't yeah. you know? There's you get right. you get you. I, I'm not, con- I'm not in really control of the feeling of anger, but I can control what I do with that anger. Yes, you're con- we have in control yes, of your physical exactly. body. Yes. I mean, Augustine was not concerned with these issues, but he was just concerned with sexual feelings. But uh, Riley's correct that our whole range of emotional life is generally because we also don't walk into a room and say, you I would kill, you I would bang. There's a game <laughs> that people play. Like Jerome, Augustine had a rival in the ascetic and theologian Pelagius, who incidentally also attracted the scorn of the acerbic Jerome. Pelagius was a Celt, likely Irish or British, and fluent in Greek and Latin. He said that Augustine's thinking had been distorted by his Manichaeanism. 
Manichaeanism, sure, which, like the heretical Gnostics, taught that all materiality was inherently evil. Augustine believed we were perpetually drawn to sin because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Again, principles that Christianity was not wildly concerned with until Augustine said, Adam and Eve, we really need to be thinking about these guys. They could control themselves. The fall has become you know, a major thing in Christian doctrine, but without Augustine, it's conceivable that we would have just said, ah, Adam and Eve, that was a, that was a weird story. Let's because move even on. since him, it remains no one's weird. really, no, no one really writes about weird. it like in that no no one really talks about it really cares about it <laughs> it's now it's really it's seen as more of a, a, a metaphor it's not seen as some sort of genesis story yeah it's yeah. it depends on who you talk to man in most in most catholic circles i would say talking about a thinking catholic kind of ideology but there are fundamentalists oh there's fundies everywhere who are build building but, museums that yeah. demonstrate the earth is six thousand years old and all right devil put dinosaur bones here to fool us satan said the earth is 6,000 years old? Yes. I know vampires older than that. Like, personally? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's spooky season thought I'd all right, that's, Yeah, let's throw that in for Halloween. Pelagius said that all things created by God were good, and that it made no sense to conceive of God creating a fallen humanity. The doctrine of the fall and original sin were by no means settled at this point in history. Pelagius said humans have free will to choose to do God's will, and God helps them to do good works. God's with us. God's rooting for us, says Pelagius. Yet we do not defend the good of nature to such an extent that we claim that it cannot do evil. Since we undoubtedly declare that it is capable of good and evil, we merely try to protect it from an unjust charge, so that we may not seem to be forced to do evil through the fault of our nature, when, in fact, we do neither good nor evil without the exercise of our will, and always have the freedom to do one of the two, being always able to do either reasonable man that's yeah. much more i don't know of the widely accepted ideology now and thinking now <laughs> at the time my man yeah. was not having a good day though it's the idea of um it's really just not i think it's more ignored is probably the better word in catholic thinking now original sin um it's gotta yes, be kicking around there the idea, comes up original in the occasional sin, but sermon the idea of that um the idea that we are drawn towards evil that is different that that idea that we we can't help ourselves the, the i think the common thinking now is more of we are drawn towards good and it is in our longing for goodness that that gets twisted sometimes it's in a longing for love a longing for goodness a longing for what are good things and we get it twisted we get it distorted sometimes and that's the idea is that Sin is a distortion of good. Um, anyway, but that's more of the thinking is that we as humans long for God, which is goodness, but we get it wrong sometimes. I think that might be a state beyond Pelagius. He seems sort of neutral to me. Mm-hmm. You're just saying it is what it is. Mm-hmm. We can yeah, he choose says you do what other. you do. That sounds more like, uh, what's her face? Julian of Norwich. Yeah. I like that. All as well. See our episode on Julian of Norwich, <laughs> which Riley nearly did. I um, almost did, but, for, but I was very pregnant. You were about to have a baby. So yeah. sick. <laughs> on the advice of Augustine and four other bishops, uh, Pope Innocent I excommunicated Pelagius. 
his successor, Pope Zosimus. We need to have more Pope Zosimuses. Why doesn't anybody pick that name? That's I'll name badass. my baby Zosimus and train him to be the best Pope in the world. The next Pope. Yeah, you're going to name your you, kid right? Zosimus. They usually yeah. pick a name, though. Zosimus. Yeah, they pick You can one. name your kid whatever. They pick a new name when they arrive at Pope Town. They can pick Zosimus. <laughs> yeah, they really need to. That's I've such never, a cool I've, name. I've never heard of it. Your next kid. That's yeah. such a cool Tom name. Paul and Zosimus. Zosimus is so cool. <laughs> it is really cool. Come on. They reopened Pelagius's case, but again, Augustine and the North African bishops pressured the Pope into keeping Pelagius outside the good graces of the Church. Such was the power of Augustine. Augustine was not on the fringes of power. My man was central to power in his lifetime, which is rare of people who have reasonable thoughts. <laughs> FYI. Melville died in poverty. Poe died in poverty. Most great American authors died unacknowledged. Despite the profound influence Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine had on the culture of celibacy in Christendom, they were not the direct authors of any constitutional degrees, decrees requiring the clergy to abstain from sex. Scholars regard the Council of Elvira. That's right, the Council of Elvira. That sounds dangerous. Yeah, they had giant bosoms, and they introduced horror movies. And then they had the council. Mm. Wait, is that for real? Is that a joke? <laughs> you don't mess with me, Rob. I'm making too many references to 80s and 90s <laughs> stuff, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, no, we had zero reaction. You don't know we, Elvira? We repeated it, and we were like... Oh, um, there are people in their ah, 30s and their 40s who are losing it right now. It sounds now. familiar. It sounds like Elvira. Elvira. Vera, I don't know Vera. I feel like anyway. was that from Starcraft. It sounds know. familiar. It's in southern Spain. This council. Uh, it was the year was three hundred and five, uh, and it was the first effort to legislate pre-sexual discipline. Now I'm not going to do this for long, friends. We've had fun talking about Augustine, Ambrose, and friends. Now I got to do this like council stuff, and I know this gets a little in the weeds. I promise you, I'm going to get in and out in two minutes, maybe five. Okay. Called by the Bishop Osius of Cordoba and issued 81 decrees on a variety of issues. I will read them as quickly as possible. I'm not going to read all 81. That'd be terrible. <laughs> okay, Canon 27 forbid unmarried priests from cohabiting with women, not a woman not of his kin. Canon 33 indicated that priests were not allowed to have intercourse with their wives. This sounds strange, but ordination was meant to be an occasion to change the terms of their marriage. These decrees suggest both that the practice of celibacy was already happening and that it was inconsistent enough to require rules. The Council of Elvira did not bear on other churches, but Bishop Osius also attended other councils at Arles and Nicaea and brought these ideas with him. At Nicaea, held in 325, clerics were forbidden to live with women other than their relatives, but the council did not go into any greater depth on the question of celibacy. A story spread of a likely fictional bishop named Paphnutius. That sounds made up anyway. Right, it is made up, right? <laughs> Paphnutius. Paphnutius. Ridiculous. That's I a brand of peanut butter. You've heard of Paphnutius? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Well, he's imaginary. Chunky or creamy. <laughs> Did you make him a saint? I think there's more than one. <laughs> oh, well, I hope so, because this guy's made up in 325. No, de like, definitely. He was an Egyptian priest. Sound familiar? Known for his chastity? You Catholics will sometimes uh, canonize an imaginary person. You know that. We, oh, we've done that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. That's happened a couple times. Some of our favorite ones might, might yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. Valentine? I mean. Who knows? We don't know. Yeah. It's, he's a nice thought. Whatever. <laughs> this was a chaste Egyptian priest, Paphnutius. 
invented uh, various kinds of nut butter. Not peanut butter. That was George yeah. Washington Carver. Right. <laughs> he and Pafnusius really <laughs> run the peanut butter circuit. Pafnusius invented <laughs> cashew butter in 325. Acorn butter. <laughs> um, at the... <laughs> Oh, don't put that on your term paper. At the Council of Nicaea, he spoke out, saying that if a priest, Paphnutius, that is, that if a priest was abstinent before his ordination, he should remain so, and if he was married, he should continue to honor the bonds of matrimony. Sounds fair. Paphnutius, uh, what am I saying? Paphnutius, can't say that enough. Uh, his own reputation and chastity gave way to his argument, and the council decided to leave the question of celibacy up to the bishops locally. A gathering of bishops in Carthage in 390, oh boy, compared the Christian clergy to the Old Testament's Levitical priesthood and prescribed that priests abstain from sex with their wives. Pope Siricius, who was Bishop of Rome from 384 to 399, decreed absolute celibacy. He was concerned about priests and bishops fathering children after their ordination, as well as monks and nuns guilty of sacrilegious passion. If priests refused to ascribe to the rule of celibacy, they were to be cut out with a knife. Metaphorically, of course. Incidentally, Siricius was likely the first bishop of Rome to call himself Pope. Huh. Two popes later, Innocent I wrote that only those who had remained virgins since infancy and those baptized as adults who married only once and remained chaste could be candidates for ordination. Innocent I, right? Come on. A little on the nose. Yeah, it is a little on the nose. <laughs> but it was still possible up through the 6th century for priests to have children, albeit, ideally, not after ordination. It was Pope As and Anastasius I who uh, escaped. Anastasias. Yeah, Anastasius, who famously <laughs> escaped the uh, the murder of the Romanovs. Oh. Yes. Oh, uh, That was that Pope who <laughs> held the... <laughs> so many... So many things that shouldn't go in your term paper. Who held the throne of St. Peter at the turn of the 5th century, Anastasius, uh, may have been the father of Pope Innocent I, his successor, as well as Felix III, who was Pope at the end of the same century, and was the great-great-great-grandfather of Gregory the Great, who reigned a century later. <laughs> so, so much for abstinence, Innocent I. No, they're, uh, they're definitely reproducing. In the 12th century, the Lateran councils brought clerical celibacy to its current state of affairs in the Roman Catholic Church. The first Lateran council in 1123 forbid priests, deacons, subdeacons, and monks from marrying or living with women. The second Lateran council of 1139 decreed that those who had married uh, had married uh, be deprived of their ecclesiastical office. While it was possible to interpret such decrees as only referring to marriage after ordination, they came to be understood as an absolute prohibition against marriage at any time of life. There could be no married priests after 1139. That was a long time. But there really weren't many before then. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were less people in general. From Peter to like 400, we had them. Yeah. And then it's we had much, we had like eight of them after that, and then we went down to zero. Roughly. <laughs> Give or take. Yeah. We still got a few. Rough estimates. The rules passed by these popes and councils owe their origin to the 4th century trio who preached adamantly in favor of celibacy. In fact, many of the justifications they formed for their opinions cited Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine. In decreeing celibacy superior to marriage and procreation, Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine developed a theology that human nature is inherently sinful. 
Jerome and Augustine lived this out, feeling intense guilt over their sexual attraction to women. The notion that physical intimacy or even family life could be spiritual were foreign to these men, who refused to marry the women they had sex with, and in Augustine's case, fathered children by. Their conversion was not only an entry onto belief, but a break with sexuality. Pelagius and Jovinian were not alone in opposing a chaste interpretation of scripture. The celibate argument was deeply fraught at its inception, but in the end, it won out over the opposition. All right, I've been gentle. Let him have it, Rob. Riley, I'm sorry in advance. I'm about to go kind of hard. In my opinion, the profound impact of celibacy's victory cannot be overstated. So much of our modern experience of sex goes back to this 4th century debate today. A so-called celibate clergy, regularly the subject of international sex scandals, shows how impractical and even dangerous Augustine's views were. It is difficult not to read a correlation between institutionalized sexual repression and sexual abuse into the horrors committed by clergy. I think it's crass and unfair to say that all priests are abusers, but I also think it's naive to ignore the volume of cases taking place within this profession, or the link between guilty priests' vows and their crimes. I mean, that's really the deal. They're all professions have abusers, sexual abusers, yeah. like obviously. But this is one where we see a kind of hypocrisy that cuts very deep. More innocuously, priests have been known throughout history to step out on their vows and father children or take homosexual partners. I'm not going to scandalize anyone when I say that is happening right now. Somewhere on earth, a priest is having homosexual sex. The fact that Protestant ministers are, according to some studies, just as likely to commit sex crimes, and that's true, FYI. Some studies have shown, I guess in defense of Catholics, Catholic priests who abuse children, uh, that Protestant ministers do it too. That doesn't make us feel any better. Um, This, however, shows that marriage in and of itself is not necessarily the solution. The truth is, even among those who aspire to the highest standards of Christian life, the demonization of sex haunts and unwinds their religious commitments. The notion that sex is sinful has made it difficult for Westerners to seriously theorize the spiritual nature of sexual relationships. In America, this has bred, on one side, a conservative culture that continues to demonize birth control and pornography without distinction and preach the absurd notion that abstinence is best without advising teenagers on the benefits of masturbation for the love of Jesus. On the other side, We've developed a whole school of the pathologically sex-positive, tinderized libertines who don't believe sexual intimacy requires emotional intimacy and are comfortable acting and treating others purely as objects for personal gratification and, in turn, becoming objects for others. Both camps have grown out of the idea that sex has nothing to do with the soul, that the time, care, and attention it takes to get to know another person are not necessary for physical intimacy, that we need not be vulnerable when we take off our clothes and share our desires with another person, that sex is entirely about pleasure and not about personal connection. Seems weird, but let the idea sink in. Really. And I'm not a prude, guys. (laughs) Definitely not. 
polygamy, whatever, do your thing, I guess. I'm not saying you have to be in a monogamous relationship even. I'm just making the argument that sex and the spirituality and your soul and your emotions are intertwined. And no matter what you tell yourself, whether you're a priest or a call-her-daddy host, (laughs) no matter what you tell yourself, there are consequences every time. Across time and space, I find myself in Algiers, sitting beside Augustine's abandoned mistress, a woman he'd lived with for 14 years, a woman who bore him a son. I sit beside this woman, forced from her partner's side by his jealously controlling mother, reduced to an unnamed phantom in his memoir. I sit beside this woman, and I take her hand in mine, and together we weep. That's it for me. Thoughts on the relationship between celibacy and America and Europe? I mean, come on. I don't want to say America. We have international listeners, Australia, Europe, but we are all inheritors of a Western tradition that Augustine is at least partially responsible for. I definitely, I see, I can see that. While you were talking, I was having flashbacks to my schooling and things that I was taught and the way that I saw men behave around me. I went to an all boys Catholic school in high school and there were many of my, my, my uh, fellow students who were like afraid of women. And that can't be good. Well, that's modern day purity culture. Um, that idea that, I mean, I, I heard that growing up and it's something that I see many people deconstructing and because it really doesn't align with you know, most teaching, but this, this idea that it is a woman's job to not defraud a man. That is right. a- absolutely that it's that it's our job to, you know, you know, men are visual creatures and it's our job. You know, it's it's it's, it's our fault. And that then plays into rape culture and sexual assault. And mm-hmm. so I, I agree with definitely most of what you're saying. But I, it applies to Augustine and Jerome, does it not? Yes. Men who saw yes. women purely as objects. Yes. Augustine, who his weird relationship with his mother prevented him from maintaining. Yes. He had to objectify his, the mother of his child. He yep. had to turn her into nothing but an animal that he banged. But I, I do think that, um, they got celibacy wrong. I do think that a healthy attitude towards sex in our church can also can coexist with chosen celibacy this fascinates me riley i knew that this would be interesting because you just had a child you are in a marriage now Mm -hmm. what does this mean tell me about a church that preaches celibacy francis very recently i mean everything he does is recent if we think about the long span of history we're talking about the year 400 uh but he did not allow for marriage, this was this was a possibility to expand the priesthood. Uh, what are we talking about here? But again, like the whole word "not allow," nobody's forced into anything. No one's forced to yeah. be a priest. But, but and and you can't be closest to God unless you're celibate. I don't think that's true, and I don't think priests are closest to God. It's the I mean, we use the term vocation, right? So there's different vocations in the Catholic Church. There's vocations to a religious life. There's the married vocation. None is above the other. That there's some people that have that that think so that is not in any way church teaching, but it's that we are different and we have different calls on how we're supposed to live life 
and how we're supposed to seek God. And I do think that celibacy for some people can be a way to that. That doesn't mean that sex has to be demonized. That I do think those two can coexist. Just because people in the past have preached celibacy and demonized sex doesn't mean that those two are synonymous. I think it can be seen as sex is such a good thing that it is can be a, a beautiful and worthy sacrifice. And so there's a million theological and... What do you mean by sacrifice? What are we sacrificing? Sex. Because oh, it is oh, something oh, oh. so good. And there's a million I theological, so you know, beautifully right. written theological explanations for celibacy. But I also think practically, the practical life of a priest, of a nun, of a religious person, that's the term, not a religious person is somebody who is a um, consecrated, whatever, um, is not one that I think can exist in a... In a family or in a, in, a, in a marriage, a marriage to a church, I think, is the best image for that. A, a priest's life is one thousand percent dedicated. A nun's life, anyone's life, to their mission, to their practice. As a married person, yes, like my my number one priority has to be my family, and I make all decisions with them in mind. And that would majorly contradict a life where a priest. Their number one priority should be the people they serve, whether it's a parish, whether it's a mission, whatever it is, they need to be a thousand percent open and available to those people. That is who they're married to. That is their, that is, that is their spouse. And that should be their number one priority. And I really don't think a married man, a married woman can live that life fully. Those are two different separate lives. Well, now you're it's dangerous territory. So you're saying a Protestant minister, a Jewish rabbi who has a family can't devote themselves equally. I would say to it's much harder to, much harder to, because there were there are definitely, I mean, you can think of practical times when you'd have to choose one over the other. If one of your parishioners is dying in the middle of the night, but you have a sick child at home, you've got to make the decision: Are you staying home with your sick child? Or are you going to the parishioner that needs you? Yeah, but if you have a wife, that could make it easier. What if you're a doctor? I agree. It's hard. It's hard decisions. But I we think don't a doctor's, a doctors. doctor's role in your life, a doctor's role is much different than a priest's role. A doctor has hours. A doctor can clock in and clock out, and there's somebody that can come in and take your 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 spot. I mean, the priests that I know, right? I mean, a lot of these in religious orders, you up and move every four years. To go and start your new mission. Well, so do professors, but we have children. But you also have a nine to five, you know? Not really. I don't have I a mean, nine to five. What time is it? I, yes. You know what I mean, right? Like you have hours and yeah. you're in. Okay. So I, I do think that those lives, it's very hard. It's, it, that would be, it, it's very difficult. And married pastors and rabbis say it so as well. And I also do think that often Catholic priests, um, they're, and sisters and anyone who's, there's also other types of consecrated people, um, their jobs differ a little bit in those ways because it's not just running a parish. There are missionary priests. There are any, you know, anything like that. And so I, I do think that chosen celibacy, meaning giving your undivided mind, body, and soul to God and to your mission, I do think that if when chosen and again it's chosen and 
you have to go to a minimum of seven years of seminary. Most of the priests I know have gone to 14 years, 14 years of living celibate lives that you can leave at any time you want to prepare themselves for this and to make sure this is what they really want. This is chosen. And it, and the priests that I know chose this and loved this life. And this is what they wanted in those 14 years of preparation when they had to live like that in order to know that this is what they really wanted. And so I, I just think that just because, I don't know, the people that preached celibacy, um, they did it so out of, out of a demonization of sex doesn't mean that that is what celibacy does. I think it's that mindset that led to that. But I do think that the two can go exist because I do see now a church that is starting to really open their mind to sex and to the beauty of sex. Well, and that's to... something to look forward to seeing more of. <laughs> well, I see John Paul II. When you talk about like these, that, oh my gosh, his theology of the body just delves into what a gift sex is and to and, but, and controversial yeah. figure man who's splitting the church up in many ways as well mm. so His you have a lot of, of catholics yes. who are pulling you back to the demonization yeah. area i mean you're speaking on a of very course. liberal yes. standpoint here yes. on this issue but i do see i do see a shift and i do think that the two can coexists as a as a freely as a as a free choice and it is true to say this that celibacy is not a doctrine it is a discipline we see yeah. that mm-hmm. because there are plenty of rights that don't have celibacy and it could be reversed at any time it is not a doctrine um it's not written into the canon of the church it's it is sorry but it's still a discipline. <laughs> i'm so sorry it's but in it's the not book a doctrine somewhere and that there are doctrines of the catholic church which those things could not change and if they were to change it would no longer be the catholic church Celibacy is not one of them. It is a cherished practice. Yeah, they, 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 they. You said it was that Nicaea that they first established that. Uh, it was a series of Elvira, yeah. really. Was the <laughs> oh, okay. was yes, so Nicaea, weird. and then it took them another seven hundred years um, to completely commit. Yeah. So uh, it's not years integral. Than it years. is not integral to. Um, it is not integral to the church. It is a. It is a beloved practice of the church, but I. I do think that those two can coexist because there are people that have chosen that life that love that life and have died happily in that life. Um, and so I, I do think that those two can coexist and that, that people, that priests and sisters that have chosen that life have done wonderful good because of their undivided mind, body, and soul dedicated to their mission and to the people that they serve. Um, so I think that those two can coexist and there's obviously been problems with it. And that's, it's not always been it, it painted in a sex positive light, but, <laughs> but I think it can be, I think that you can say that somebody could say sex is wonderful and beautiful and good and, and a part in a huge part of the human experience and still cho- choose to live a celibate lifestyle. Um, I don't think it inherently demonizes sex in the same way that fasting doesn't demonize food it's it's a a sort of sacrifice um so a form of self-discipline mm-hmm. you follow me though that augustine is partially to blame for our troubles in western 1, culture one thousand percent one thousand percent and it's not just i'm him. not really picking on catholics here been, man you happen to be our resident catholic yeah. but i'm really speaking about there have our been christian heritage pl- oh my gosh yes and there's plenty of more people after him and there are people that are still out there today that um that preach that and and the an obsession with virginity. James, do the thing. 
Buzz, buzz, buzz. <laughs> Adjourn the episode. Oh. <laughs> that was your reaction to the thing. <laughs> Wait, what is it? What is clang, this? Clang, clang, the, journey, the, the journey has been ended. What did I? You <laughs> said that I almost adjourn. got it right last I time. I hereby adjourn. I hereby adjourn this meeting of the alchemical actors until we get together and do it again. It's pretty close. Um, <laughs> our voices today are the voice boys, Mims and Luke and uh, Sean and Brandon. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am joined this day after. 18 months by Riley Cla- R- Riley Claxton Hernandez. That's that's me. That's you. Is that is that you? Is that really? Is that what you go by? Hernandez, actually. No, but you don't really. you don't use your yeah, maiden name at all. Name. Not on my license. That'll be confusing for the listeners though. It's fine. You can talk right. about whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> use your use the whole name. Like you're like you're at a reunion. Uh, and James Caplanche is <laughs> captain of the table. Farewell, friends. Uh, catch us next time. Uh, I don't. What the heck will we be doing? Casanova. Ooh, Casanova. <laughs> I always feel bad because the people I'm talking to won't be there. But yes, we'll be talking. <laughs> you guys can listen. You're like hopping up and down. Casanova. You're so excited, and I'm like, ah, it's I'm a not, fun episode. Not I love this time period. All right, I love libertines. They're they're crazy. All right, see ya. There's an idea.